think AI is still looking for that killer use case in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And I think education is like number one. Like that's impossible. Like, dude, this, mm. this guy is like building rockets to Mars. He's building a seven billion. Like, come on. So yep. Kind of bring it back. It's like that's what I think people aren't just aren't just ambitious enough. Today, I'm talking to Charles Lee, a Korean American founder who built Coder School in Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, it's great to meet you, man. I don't think we've had the pleasure to chat, right? Uh, we were in different yeah. cohorts. Uh, so yeah, like both of us basically uh, iterative cohorts. I was in the first one, you were in the second one, if I'm not mistaken. And you're running Coder School. Is that that's Correct. the name, right? Coder, Coder School? Yeah. Uh, and I was going through your LinkedIn and I, I didn't realize this. You're actually fully American, right? It seems at, at the very least. Yeah. yeah so, Born yeah, and fully, raised. As fully, as fully American as one can be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. American. Uh, okay. I'm Korean. I'm Korean. I explain like uh, I'm Korean American. So I was oh, Korean okay, cool. born in the U.S. Yeah. So my Very parents cool. were born in Korea. I was born in the U.S. My wife is Korean, so I know a little bit. Oh, that. what? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Wow. She's full yeah. Korean though. Uh, so I'm learning all the uh, all the cultural differences between American, Korean American, like Korean Koreans, and how they, you know, how they see each other basically, because it's a whole different culture at this point. Yeah, it's amazing, right? Like actually. Um... I always talk about this. So actually, my wife uh, is also full Korean. So I'm getting married okay. actually in uh, three weeks. Congrats. Um, thank you. And it's funny that like, um, once you're like kind of similar, the differences become much bigger. So I feel like with mm -hmm. you, like, uh, I don't know about your situation, but I would imagine like your wife's family would like not know exactly what to what to give some some things but like with, yep. with my family it's like they know exactly like what city is she from oh she's from that city. right oh yeah, yeah. Like that kind of stuff it's like, yeah oh. no i know what you mean it's more flagrant when you're assuming they'll be the same but they're obviously different exactly. is, is exactly. what you mean yeah, yeah i know what you mean yeah I, I, i've had amazing experiences in korea man i have to say it's one of my favorite places to go to uh, and one of the reasons why we're living in southeast asia is to be closer to her family and be able to travel more more often so yeah good stuff do you speak korean some like yeah some enough okay okay i'm learning man it's such a tough language i i know a few languages but korean has to be the hardest one maybe it's because i'm getting older but mm -hmm. wow it's like night and day from any latin languages or whatever i will say i think it's uh it's not tonal which i think helps a lot but uh so yeah like, re reading and writing quite easy right i mean you obviously probably were raised with that but for me it was something yes. i could learn in a, in a couple hours and I'm, I'm legit saying that because there's like courses on how to learn to read and yeah. write korean in an hour it's, it's quite easy <laughs> but yeah speaking it i'm trying every week it's just gonna take a while cool so you live in vietnam right are you in which city are you in ho chi minh city ho chi minh city okay cool so you've been in ho chi minh city since 2015 correct or were you there before starting this business no, so um, before coming to Vietnam, I, I did come to Vietnam in 2015, and I didn't come with the idea of starting Coder School. Uh, I had come from San Francisco, where obviously there was a lot of startup uh, stuff here and there. I was part of that crowd, so my career started at big companies, and then over time, I, I found myself drawn to smaller and smaller companies. Happy to talk about that until eventually I tried to start my own company actually in San Francisco. And so I did that okay. for a year and a half, two years maybe. And uh, it was a lot harder than I thought. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, even moving from early employee to founder, I was like, oh, this is, this is a bigger jump than I realized. Perhaps my CEOs I was working for were not 
as dumb as I thought. And so I was trying to take a break and that's how I ended up Vietnam. I was like, you know what? Like, actually I was like, this is not for me. Uh, I was, I'm, I'm an engineer. So I was like, oh, I was, I didn't realize how good I had it as an engineer. You know, I just mm -hmm. put all day, get paid pretty well, um, things like that. So the one thing I always felt though, was that I wanted to live outside the U S for a little bit. So yep. despite being Korean, I was born and raised in America and I feel very American. I visited Korea a bunch of times, but I never like really saw, I feel like I've been on vacation places, but, uh, people are always telling me things like when you live somewhere, it's a totally different experience. And so I've always been curious about that. Like, what would it be like to be somewhere for a month or two months or three months, not just there to like see the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the lonely planet guide. Totally. Um, and just so happened that Vietnam was on the list. And when I came here, uh, the whole story behind coder school was, I think one is I was kind of a nerd and I didn't really know how to meet people. Like once you realize I'm going to be here for three months or six months, you're sort of like, I need to like meet some real people. Yeah. And it's, it's not clear how to do that. So mm -hmm. what did I do? I went to like tech people, like meetings and stuff on yeah. uh, tech meetups. .com. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so one thing leads to another and, uh, people ask me what I do. And actually, I didn't really know how to answer that question because I didn't have a job. And I wasn't, I didn't really want to get in the whole thing of like, well, I tried to do startup stuff and it didn't work out. Uh, that story got really um, mm -hmm. boring and tedious to tell. So what I told people was I was a coding teacher, because that's okay. actually something I was doing. So I was moonlighting, uh, working part time uh, for a former housemate of mine, actually, who did start an online coding school back in mm. 20, 2014, or what it was. So when I explained that, the immediate reaction I got from most people in Vietnam was like, oh, you should do that here. Like, there's no coding school here. Very cool. Um, so that's how coding school kind of got started. And like, I know that Vietnam now is, you know, one of the top hubs, or at least spoken in that regard as a top hub for developers, at least in Southeast Asia. Uh, it wasn't the case in 2015, I assume. Things are kind of moving quite rapidly. So you're like, like you said, there was no coder school, early adopter in terms of teaching people to code. Uh, are you responsible partially for like the massive growth that uh, Vietnam has seen in the last 10 years uh, for, for developers? I would like to say that, but no, I, I don't think it was the case. Uh, not yet. Hopefully I can answer that question a little differently a few years from now. But the thing you said is really interesting. And it's something about Southeast Asia that I find uh, I only appreciate after living here for a while is that each people tend to think about Southeast Asia as like one country. But obviously, if you live mm. here, you realize that it's not one region, right? Everyone's very different. For sure. But when it comes to talents, I find that like particularly interesting. Like people sort of have this idea, like, oh, Vietnam's good at coding. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like uh, Singapore's good at finance or something. Thailand's good at design. Like they have these different types of things. Philippines is good at customer service. Like yep. these yep. kinds yep. of uh, these kinds of reputations sort of occur. And I don't know if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or what, but I think that sort of like reinforces itself. But specifically when it comes to Vietnam, no, Vietnam had that reputation, I think, a long time ago, uh, you know, codes are good. But the thing I found really interesting is that despite this reputation, I couldn't point to an educational institution that was like the best. Like, oh, Vietnam has the best coders. Is there a really good university or is there like a, what's the MIT of Vietnam? This kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, how did it happen? And there wasn't, there wasn't something like that. So interesting. Like, oh, so do you have an answer? Actually, I'm curious, how did that happen without a proper curriculum in place or like anything standing out from the rest of Southeast Asia, as you said? Yeah, I think there is, um, I think, uh, compared to Southeast Asia, I think maybe Vietnam, maybe, maybe Singapore, both have sort of this like Confucian math and science STEM slant. Mm -hmm. So I think like kind of historically people are like, you should be good at math. And I think that's 
highly emphasized. So I think that's probably third of it. I think the Vietnamese government has interesting things. Actually, most uh, people have to study coding in school. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's pretty, Pascal, that's pretty intense. Is, oh, wow. <laughs> which is really out of date. So that's, so that's yeah. an issue that's a little bit out of date, perhaps. Um, but yeah, but the people get exposed to it early. So I think those things have really combined to yeah. be cool. It adds up, it adds up. And how's the... Um... How's the geopolitical landscape for, for businesses or startups in, in Vietnam? Because I know, every, as you said, you know, Southeast Asia is super fragmented. Every country has their own rules and regulations. Uh, and this is something we could talk a lot about. But, you know, Southeast Asia should not be seen as one single region. So how, how is it to start a company in, in Vietnam right now? Is it easy? I think that uh, it is not easy, but it's not because of the regulations. So I think it's challenging to start a business. We can get all the different reasons, but often people who are asking me about, hey, is it hard to start a business in Vietnam? Are sort of asking about the regulatory, like, you know, like what mm -hmm. paperwork do you need? Is it clear? That stuff is super easy. Um, okay. I mean, I think it's certainly, there's some, some nuance to it, but that's not the reason that most companies fail, I would say. It's because of that. Okay. Um, and, you know, there's, as I mentioned earlier, there's two types of founders For, for startups in Southeast Asia, there's foreigners who come to Southeast Asia, whether they're, you know, born in uh, abroad, but from a heritage of, of Asia. And then there's locals who want to start a business. Um, is it, you know, foreigner friendly to, to build something in Vietnam or not really? Yeah, I think it's extremely foreigner friendly. So I was really okay. surprised by that, actually. So um I, I really don't think I've ever felt like sort of hostility from anybody. Like, what are you doing here trying to like mm -hmm. run a business here? I think people are genuinely like excited about progress and developments. And okay. it's a similar feeling. I always talk about how it feels a little bit like San Francisco used to feel. Like when you just have an idea or something new, people are generally receptive to it. And it's not about like who, where you're from or they're, they're just right. more interested in the actual like output, which is cool. Okay, that's very cool. I think like one of the main things that, you know, foreign startup founders would look at is how easy is it to, to get a visa and things like that, because certain countries that don't make very easy. You know, I live in Thailand, and it's not easy to get a visa if you want to build a startup here. You, you have to go through certain institutions, and they, they have a pretty high rejection rate and things like that. So just curious if that's like, it seems a lot more startup friendly in Vietnam in that regard. I think the situation, situation in Vietnam is a little bit dynamic. It is, uh, I mean, I think if you've lived in the region long enough, you realize there are often many ways to get to the output. Like there's like the official way sure. and there's like other sort of um, ways that are sometimes faster, sometimes slower. But yeah, it's generally not um, a huge concern. I thought Thailand actually, so by the way, like I didn't realize you were in Thailand. Like I thought they had some like amazing program where- Yeah, like, I mean, they, they like, built an amazing free. program yeah. on paper, on paper. <laughs> So I think early, early on, they really wanted to attract a lot of startups. Uh, and I don't know if you know this, but as much as the economy here is, is really nice, there's a big uh, middle class. The number of startups is one of the lowest in Southeast Asia. I think the, uh, Boston Consulting came out with a report a few months ago, and they report an official number of 185 startups, which, you know, you know this, that it's like one batch at, at YC right now. So it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> So yeah, they do have a program in place, but uh, I I hear the rejection rate is is quite high. They're very picky on what type of startups they want, which you know it's fine. They they should be picky, but I think it's deterring a lot of startup founders from building anything in in, uh, in the Thailand. On top of the fact that you know the language uh, the language uh, like the language barrier, um, the the whole culture is different from whatever they they might be familiar with. Um, 
it's a lot easier, let's say, to start something in the Philippines where people speak English to, to start with. Mm. Um, so yeah, th there's a there's a few challenges in in Thailand, unfortunately, but I'm pretty sure they're they're working on that. Cool. And what about uh, fundraising? Uh, just to give you a bit of background, I started a business uh, five years ago in the in the Philippines, a fintech business. Um, it's now been uh, exited, but when we started getting money in the Philippines was close to impossible. Um, the only countries that were really, uh, you know, funding or like the, the, that were targeted by VCs were Indonesia and Singapore. Uh, it's a lot more common now, but I'm curious about uh, the, the, you know, the funding in Vietnam. I saw numbers where compared to the height of 2021, it's pretty much collapsed now, but I'm just curious what you're feeling on the ground. Yeah, I always had all these questions you're asking, by the way, like I have to be a little careful about. Um, I do think that's maybe one thing that in the region, like I don't want to, I feel like in the U.S., whatever, you can kind of say whatever you want. Um, sure. Here, I want to be a little bit more like. Uh, be as careful like, as you need to be. Yeah. As you ask questions about sort of like government or landscape or these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right? No worries. I, my, my feeling is actually, yeah, it's challenging for everyone across the board. Um, I think perhaps like venture capital as like the traditional model of like, you know, the ones that made the grabs and the, that kind of thing mm -hmm. is sort of maybe under some scrutiny. I think there's a growing sentiment that, hey, like perhaps the U.S. playbook does not apply one to one with the Southeast Asia playbook. Like mm -hmm. perhaps they're not going to be the Ubers and the WeWorks, uh, the SoftBank type model. Um, at the same time, like I feel super bullish about it for two reasons, uh, specifically Vietnam. One is, I mean, you talk about all this like capital available in Indonesia. I think it's to me, it feels like it's sort of crested. Uh, mm -hmm. How much more? How are you going to make 100x gains in Indonesia? It's like it seems a lot harder now. Right. So I think people are going to be drawn to where the sort of opportunities are. Thailand, yeah, it seems for for some reason like you know GDP growth is sort of not strong, and the outlook is sort of like I think mixed. And so mm -hmm. people are looking at I think Vietnam as a viable option. Where else is the money going to True. be deployed? Uh, the VCs have to eventually deploy their money somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think Vietnam's like a strong candidate. Uh, so I feel pretty good about that. But like underneath all of this, uh, for the stage that Color School's at, despite us being around from 2015, I think as a mixture of like both its leadership and the industry we're in, it's a little bit of a small, it's like a, it's, it's been a, a slower sort of progression. So we're not huge now. So our next round would be like an A-ish round. So you raised like 2.6, right? A pre-A, right. pre, pre something like that. Pre-A, right. yeah. Was so that, how long ago like, was that? That was uh, 2021. Okay. So, to to oh man it's been two and a half years now yeah Time flies time. yeah but uh for that reason i think that like we're so so much in control of our own destiny so i feel like if i can just double our you know our customers every month it doesn't matter if like vietnam's not the coolest place to invest mm -hmm. perhaps if of i was course. like a, you know series c series d or trying to exit right that would be a different conversation but right now we're so, so, so let's there. talk about that though like i'm curious about coda school like where you guys are at right now if you can give me some numbers tell me a bit more about the business uh how you like obviously you're teaching people how to code uh you're placing them i believe like you have a placement uh agency style model uh what's what's the whole structure of business model what are some numbers you can throw at me i'm very curious about it yeah, before we get numbers, let me just clarify um, what we do. So we're trying to build online education. So it didn't yep. always start online, but for the past few years, it's been a fully online experience. The big observation is like, look, there are big companies out there. For example, I think Coursera is a great one. Uh, I think 600 million revenue every every year, but it's still not something I would recommend to most people, especially within the context of Southeast mm -hmm. Asia. Like if someone came to me and was like, hey, Charles, I really want to be like 
a data scientist, what should I do? And I'm not sure. I'd be like, hey, you should go sign up for Coursera. That's like 10 out of 10 mm -hmm. you should do. So um, uh, then maybe there's some context where that makes sense. Uh, but I think at least in our region, this is not the right option. And so when I think of what else can they do, like how do people want to become data scientists or product managers or you know, all the UI UX designers, when it comes to this whole spectrum, it just seems like there's no good options anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of crazy to me, especially in 2024, why, why that's the case. And so what Core School is trying to provide is that sort of relevant, uh, useful, actionable career training. Right now we specialize okay. in software and data science. So we do like a web okay. development course uh and uh and data science course we're rapidly looking to add more catalogs so 2024 it's really about adding more and more things um before this call i was working on our new game development in unity course Ooh, very so cool that's next uh, but there's just so many like new things to learn and you know there's there's all these trends that basically are sort of pushing i think education a lot faster like we're gonna have you to guys have anything more. blockchain related or not not yet. We 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 have done some blockchain stuff in the past. Uh, mm -hmm. Like everyone else in 2018, uh, actually, I, mm -hmm. I played with the idea of like we should pivot to be like the best blockchain school. And uh, I didn't I didn't quite do that. We ran some blockchain courses, so we have we ran some Solidity courses, things like that. Mm -hmm. But um, it's something we're definitely looking at. Um, okay. And these are three months courses, just like kind of the standard. Like there's a lot of them in in, in North America as well, right? Three month program, and then you try to place. Yeah, so our model is a little bit different now. So we've done, we've we've done that three month three month thing before. Now the way it works is most of our classes are six months long, okay. and they're one on one mentor led. Meaning, oh, wow. we cool. have all these material on on Coursera and stuff, Coursera style. Like we have videos and exercises mm -hmm. and a whole learning platform. But then every week, uh, once a week, you have to talk to someone one on one, like like this. Okay. And to me, it's like a really simple structure but it's also like how most people learn most things like you know if you're trying to learn how to play guitar or swim you wouldn't go to class for like eight hours a day to to do these things you would you know have a lesson once a week and then in the meantime practice on your own yeah and that's exactly what we're trying to do with technical skills and the other thing i find really interesting is and i'm curious in your thoughts on this too as like as the market evolves uh sort of the difference between people often ask me what's the difference between engineers in silicon valley that you've seen versus engineers here and I think the question is not even about engineers, it's about like sort of like all startup employees. And it's, I, I haven't found a better word to use than the soft skills piece, although it's like that term is like really overloaded. Mm -hmm. But it's just like things around communication, critical thinking, productivity, like getting the right things done. Specifically when it comes to, for example, data science, a really palpable example is anyone can sort of learn how to calculate the average of these numbers or like the standard deviation of these numbers. Yeah, that's yeah. not really what data scientists are being paid for, right? They're being paid to be like, oh, actually, you should sell like this. You should open an hour later on Sundays or something like that's what mm -hmm. the people want. And when it comes to these things, like, I just don't know why, but you can't learn this stuff from a book, right? You have to sort of talk to someone. Um, same thing with startup founder education, like, right? Like, you, like, there's no book out there that can really teach you startup stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's not complicated. It's like, you should find product market fit. You should, you know, stay lean. You should, you know, like be profitable. Like these are all yeah, very simple yeah. concepts, but it's like, you have to sort of be in these conversations or have mentors or people to Agree. Sort of explain it to you. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's really cool. Um, and so the, the business model is that the students pay you upfront anything or you place them and then you take a cut for a year or some. We had the students pay us upfront. We've done the other model too in the past, and it's actually like one of the most successful experiments we ran. Uh, but it just it became sort of hard to sustain. 
and mm -hmm. I think sort more of, of an agency model at that point, right? It's a bit tricky. Agency model, it's a bit tricky. Also, like there's no real guarantee that you're going to get that money back. I guess, like, there, I mean, true, 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 true. Can it scale to a billion dollar business? Like, it's sort of unclear. And a lot of schools that sort of thought they could have sort of been struggling. I think also specifically for the sort of region, uh, collection of debt is like a more complicated thing in Southeast Asia right. than it would be in the US yeah. or Europe. And if you end up placing them or they place themselves abroad, how are you going to collect on that as well? Yeah, it's kind of tricky, right? Yeah. And also as you think about like, as you start a company, right? Like what do you want the main focus of your company to be? Like, um, I think if you start, so we, we thought about going down the model and we did, and there's certainly ways to solve all these problems. But yeah, mm -hmm. you end up being more of an agency or you end up being yep. more potentially like in the best case, you end up being like a fintech company. Right. And right. I was like, well, I'm not sure that's like where we want to, where we want to go. I, I've been there and yeah, being a, in the collection side is not fun at all, <laughs> especially in Southeast Asia. Uh, that's literally what uh, the fintech was doing. I mean, lending and collecting. So yeah, I'm, I'm familiar. Uh, and in terms of numbers, so I saw publicly that you had 2,500 alumni, probably a lot more now. That's probably old, old news. So tell me about that. Yeah. So we're fortunate to have had a lot of people over the years. So, um, I always, sorry, I always hesitate when, when I'm coining these numbers because we just had so many different versions of the model. So right. actually yep. the, very, the very first class we ran was like this free agency model. So we teach you for free, but then we would place you and like, you know, make money on, on the recruitment fees. Mm -hmm. That's how we made our first thousand dollars at Coder School. And I thought this is going to be great. Mm -hmm. And so through that we've had, and at one point we had a sponsored program. So Facebook came and paid us to run like these large community programs at, at scale. Uh, we taught like 800 people that way. 800,000. So we've had, so that number is like high. Today, what we have is we do about, uh, we do about, I mean, this year we're hoping to get to 1,500 students a year. So wow. like roughly 100 grads a month. Uh, Amazing. Uh, through online programs, yeah. And how big is your team? Because I'm assuming you have a, quite a few coaches or teachers or educators, right? Yeah. So the, the brilliance of uh, our, our model, I shouldn't say brilliance, but like the really nice thing about our, our model is that a lot of our teachers can be part-time. So if okay. you're teaching someone one-on-one, two things kind of happen. One is you don't need to prepare like for hours, like the way you would need to prepare for like, like this podcast, like I didn't have to prep for it because I knew I was just talking to you one-on-one, but if I was going right. to give a speech in front of a hundred people, I would be like up all night. Like, thinking, like yeah, I get, I get, I get, I say that so many times. So it makes it a lot easier to hire people part-time. So we have, I think 80, roughly 80 people who are part-time now uh, okay. who are teaching between one and five uh, learners a week. And you mentioned earlier that you were thinking of raising Series A. Is that in the like next few months, or what are you thinking about? Yeah, I think it's sort of like a wait and see approach. I think um, I'm curious how you how you think about it. And you've certainly sort of been farther down this road. Uh, it's like if you need to raise money, you can't. So and if you don't need yeah. to, you can. So there's like this like sort of uh, situation. So then uh, if you take sort of step back it's like well do i want to be in a situation where i need to and or do i want to be where i don't need to yeah so you have so, a you have enough runway right now that you're not stressing about it but you don't want to get in that position right yeah and then also as you forecast growth though it's like well yeah. how aggressive do i want to be because i could be really aggressive and be like look if we want to bring those numbers if i want to you know i just said 1500 what if we want to make that 10,000 like what would that be mm -hmm. okay right. like do you want to take those swings and it's sort of and and where does that you know in terms of forecasting where, where do you need to be to to be profitable basically that's what you're thinking right yeah and eventually. so the question is yeah eventually and the question is like how eventually and 
Yeah. And it's like, well, do I hire, do I hire these, like, do I grow the team in the past? And all these questions for us, mm -hmm. I think we're operating on the assumption that, uh, and this is sort of a debate. I don't love it, but I think fundraising is going to be hard. <laughs> so we're trying to operate on the assumption like, well, what if we never fundraise again? Okay. Uh, what does that and that's like? an option. I mean, you, you have to be quite close to, to profitability, I guess. Right. That, right. Right. It's only an option um, in that case. Right. But then, I mean, it is definitely an option. Um, but also it's like, well, there's this deeper question of, well, why did I, I didn't start this business to, I mean, I, I was breaking even just sitting in my apartment by myself. Like that was, I was a yeah. zero, zero burn there. So I was like, well, after 10 years, like, right. I finally got to break even like that is, there's something there, but also it's like, oh, yeah. not exactly the aspiration. I was, I was yeah. Like, yeah. We, we've definitely yeah. all been there. Like that's a, that's something you ponder on quite a bit as a founder. So you're talking about growth right now. So what's your biggest challenge? Are you trying to grow your I call it user base, but I guess you call it your student base or like, how, how do you go about that right now? Yeah. So that is, that is our biggest challenge. Um, and understanding sort of all the different pieces that go into it. I think my background's on engineering. And so I haven't ever been like really a growth guy, but then I've had the fortune of sort of having some excellent people join the team who've taught me a lot about that. Uh, mm -hmm. I think you're also a growth guy. So you could probably I'm a growth guy. So I'm, I'm nerdy about that stuff. Okay. I mean, I think there's some really basic stuff I've learned, but just like uh, number one is like this transition. I think every company does this in, in sort of everything, but like the way that I used to sort of run is like very conceptual. Like I feel, I, I got a good feeling about this. And early on, I think as a founder, you have to sort of make these calls. You don't have the luxury of For sure. investigating everything. Right. And then that, but that breaks apart very, very quickly when it comes to growth, I think. Like, mm -hmm. um, and so now it's like more of understanding like, oh, these are the good channels. Okay. Why are they good? And then sort of understand that. So for us specifically, one thing I never realized uh, until recently we started being more data driven about things was like how much of our growth was being driven by referrals. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a very healthy sign for business. I'm super happy to sort of discover that, but I never really thought about it. Okay. And then it's like, well, maybe we should have a thing where we offer people like a small incentive for referring their friends. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, what does that look like? What are the different ways? Like, do we pay them just when people sign up, when people, when they give names, like these types of things. Yeah, uh, and this sounds like rocket science, but just tracking this. Uh, no, I mean it, it's great. Like, and it's cool that you're educating yourself on it as well. I, I'm, I'm forgetting. Do you have a co-founder, by the way, or is it just you? It's just me. Uh, okay, they were co-founders for the very first part of the journey, but it's been, it's been like okay. six or seven years. Yeah. yeah, so it's good that you're surrounding yourself with some growth guys, because um, usually you'll have like two co-founders, one technical and one who's more passionate about growth and all the other business stuff, right? So. It's, it's, it's definitely a little tougher when you're on your own, whether you're technical or just business. Uh, usually the business guy has more trouble than the technical. At least you can build something. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, so I wanted to know about your thoughts because you're looking to potentially raise a Series A. And we touched base on this earlier on, but Southeast Asia is not a country, as we know. And each country is very different. But when you talk to VCs, for some reason their interest when they're you know funding you especially when you re reach series a uh you kind of have to have a roadmap into expansion um that's something that they're really keen on regardless of how big your country is and, and you know vietnam has a pretty large population on its own but that's a question that will come up i'm pretty sure when you raise your next round is what other countries you're looking at how you want to plan a, uh, how do you plan to go about that I know that that's a question we, we received when we were raising. Um, what are your thoughts on that overall? I think overall, uh, 
you can be as careful as you like, want. Yeah, yeah. No, like, and I mean, I'll maybe like edit this later. But I think there's like this sort of weird wink, wink, like um, understanding between founders and VCs. Because I don't think VCs are so naive to think it would be easy. At the same time, like, I feel like there needs to be a thesis for them to justify investing in you, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's any, there's very, very few companies, perhaps outside of Indonesia, that can say, hey, we can bring 100x, like, we can be, like, even, like, even Indonesia, right? Even, like, you know, Tokopedia, like, like, they had to, like, merge, right, to get to sort of the size they wanted mm -hmm. to be in. So mm -hmm. I think if there's sort of this wink, wink, like, hey, we'll figure it out later. Like, we'll fundraise now, and then, you know, then the next, it's sort of, like, Tiger Global's problem in the future. Like, I think there's a little bit of that between uh, two, but also that's because I think it's it's not in, based on the business. It's not impossible. It's not unprecedented, right? Like, if mm -hmm. you have this for the right team, like I mean, Grab did do it. Uh, exactly. I mean, you can name probably five companies that yeah. did it successfully, right? Yeah, but, but at the same time, like, man, like, can you, like, to me, like, Grab is like so operationally heavy, such a, like a yeah, it's, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. And and if they were able to do it, okay, like it's it's not impossible. And like with enough, money, if you raise twelve billion dollars, will you figure it out? Like possibly, right? Like like Rab did. Um, when it comes to specifically coder school, I think as long as you have a few reasons why it wouldn't not work, meaning like, are there any things that like for example, I, I wonder if like if you're like in banking or fintechs, and that could actually be a thing. Like oh, there's like different regulations that make this. Mm -hmm potentially fundamentally impossible where you have to start over things like that. Um, when it comes to education for, for me, I think the, the one thing I've been mindful about is uh, within Vietnam specifically, there's this really strong focus on K-12. So actually most businesses in Vietnam education and tech you'll talk to will be primarily K-12. There's a huge amount of household spending on, on K-12 education uh, and a lot of really great businesses in that space. So people always ask me, like, why don't you teach children to code? That seems like a really good bet for the future. Mm -hmm. are going to learn more and more. And my answer has always been, like, I think that would stop us from expanding regionally. I think that, you know, adult education actually does look more similar than, like, you know, I don't think people in Thailand would learn that differently. Like, it's the same build right. your website, build your Instagram, build your, you know, build your thing. But, chill, like, but the younger you go, I think the more localized it needs to become. Like, mm -hmm. and I see that sort of in the edtech region space. Like, it's not like issues can really come outside of India or, you know, the Indonesia is a really big one, Ramon Guru, who's, who hasn't really made outside Indonesia either. Um, so, like, I think for us, there's, like, some thesis there that, like, this could be something that grows regionally. And I think that's okay. like, the Series A, that's for what investors need to do. Going to be a discussion for sure. Like, because you guys are an online teaching platform or learning platform, and coding is mostly in English, right? So the curriculum is in the local language, but then all of the coding components of your education are in English. Like, how how did you figure that out? This is like an, a really interesting, ongoing sort of like product discussion, which is how do you sort of stay true to what makes you different while also like listening to your customers? Mm -hmm. So the very first few coder school classes were all taught in English. Uh, by me, since I don't speak Vietnamese at all, um, and people really like that. People like are like, "Oh wow!" Like he's like, you know, he's from America. He's speaking English. It's like, of course, there's like this idea that that's sort of like worth more or, or more valuable. Mm -hmm. and at some point, we're like, "Look, I think this is sort of limiting our growth um, for sort of obvious reasons." And then, but at the same time, it's like, "Well, then, how do you still so cling to what makes you special?" And and 
for us, what we settled on was we'll do our written material in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all like the online uh, exercises and everything you read and write is is in English. And I think that's particularly important for technical jobs because you you like you need to Google for stuff. You need to like for sure uh, find stuff at least today. Um, and so you need to be able to like converse, and that that makes your career options so much wider. If you have some working English proficiency, um, right? But we changed our our like speaking and listening to to Vietnamese. So um, okay. Unless people specifically request to be English, like, but like that's very few people. So, like the the coach slash mentor, they'll be talking to them in in Vietnamese, right? Yes, and the and the videos that we record are actually in Vietnamese. Uh, okay. English. I'm just trying to see how much you know how much work will be needed to replicate this in another country versus if you're a purely an English platform. In that in that case, you'd basically be able to expand pretty fast right yeah so it's also a good question there too which is like how much of localization is just like language and it's actually i think the more you do it i think this is why companies fail it's like it's not just actually translating everything to different language um oh that's really a big part of it uh one thing that's really interesting is we have tried these like ai tools to automatically translate our videos Mm -hmm. and actually it's like not bad it's 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 80 percent, right yeah it's surprisingly good Uh, so but when we like launch it it's it's not People aren't, aren't like super into it, right? And uh, maybe it's that twenty percent. It's not as engaging 20%? or something. Well, I, I, I'd say like you know what I've found, especially like creating content. If you're gonna if you're gonna use translation tools like automatic using AI, you'll get eighty percent of the content kind of right, and it might be able it might be enough versus the amount of value or like the amount of effort you've put into it, like what value you're getting for it, right? But in your case, it's like a professional setting and the output is your it's your entire value, right? So probably not something you want to cheap out on the 20% that lacks there. Right. Um, <laughs> but but actually, it's like, it, yeah, it's, it's like partially it's a factor of the translation not being exactly on. But yeah, if it's actually like this, what you said, like this professional setting, somehow like if you, like you, you can imagine like if we could translate uh, I, I think they have like AI tools to like, you know, change people's lips or whatever. Like you could translate mm-hmm. like the most famous, whatever professor speaking your language, but like it doesn't right. feel, it still doesn't feel right. Like, and, and, Agree. and one of the sort of concepts that Coder School is pushing is like, we're trying to really localize experience in, in more ways than one. Like this one-on-one experience is super intimate. Like you feel like mm-hmm. it's that inefficiency actually that like makes it meaningful. It's like, oh, this person's listening to me. I can ask some questions and things like that. So once you start like breaking that, uh, then, then you get into this other like type of product, which I think is more like like masterclass. It's like, oh, I can learn from yeah, like, yeah. Steph Curry, or I can learn from this. But it's a very different feel, and so that's right. why I think that's like why I think our experiments haven't really worked out that well. Okay, um, I'm a big nerd in terms of you know using AI to automate a lot of your business. Um, we, that was one example. Have you tried to explore, or are you actively using AI for anything else in your business, um, regardless of what it is? I think I think like. I think AI is still looking for that killer use case in a lot of in a lot of ways, um, and I think education is like number one. So I, I think that's the biggest one. And you know, what's what was like the first controversy when AI came out? It was like kids are using it on their essays in school, right? Like mm-hmm. those are the mm-hmm. first things. It's like all this sort of like BS like that that we sort of have to do can like certainly suddenly be automated. Um, and so when it comes to like coding and, and especially in like this type of stuff, I think I think AI is going to be huge. Particularly for for me, it's just like um, I mean, I was just doing this today. It's like I've explained 
what a variable is in coding like I don't know a million times at, at, at this point. But like, there's still like new ways to do it. There's still like there's certain analogies that work for some people that don't work for other people. Like just like these different like customized view, and, I, and that's like what I'm we're really interested in using AI for is like how can we explain things in, in different ways? And like AI is what's most so amazing about the AI is like it's just infinite patience. Right. We've all been there with yeah. a teacher who like we appreciate who can just explain like I still don't get a teacher. Well, no, it's like this. It's like, and eventually you'll get it, right? But it's like that mm -hmm. patience. Yeah, yeah that's a good one. It's like, it's like how do we bring that into the educational experience? And like so much of what we are trying to do actually is when you talk about engagement, engagement is just like the student feeling safe to ask a question. And then bam, like the learning is almost guaranteed to happen afterwards. But people are just for various reasons like mainly because people aren't infinitely patient, like can't ask questions and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's where I see AI helping a lot. And it also helps so, AI is like, right. So you've already started embedding like, you know, educational co-pilots into your curriculums or are you, is that something you're looking into that, you something know, the, looking into. yeah. Okay. Yeah. We haven't launched it just yet, but that's like, it's funny. A lot of my, a lot of my developer friends are building their own sort of educational co-pilots for for coding like they want to teach themselves a new language or something like that they'll just build uh, a co-pilot that will help them teach this language or whatever it's pretty cool um, so i know that's coming i agree with you i was curious like you know you're talking to coders you're teaching coders and coders are probably or developers are probably the ones that use ai the most right now like the, it's incredible how much of the code can be either uh, emitted or reviewed by ai so are, have you created like a completely new uh, curriculum around using AI as a coder? Is that something you've done yet? Or is that something you're looking into? It's not really, so there's like two aspects of this. There's one is like, how do you build these actual applications themselves? Like you have to call the open API, a open AI API, and there's like different ways to call it, streaming, true, false, like these things. So we actually have built some stuff around that. So how to use it, how to build these mm -hmm. things. But specifically, like how to search for things, you know, like how do you ask questions? Uh, how do you prompt engineer the right answers? We haven't done that yet. Uh, something I really want to do. But I think the corollary that um, I don't know if it's a standalone skill. And, and the, the example I have is like before AI, I mean, we, we've had AI forever, which is like we've had Google forever. And the number one thing that I used to teach people when they joined class is like, how do you Google for the right thing? Like you can't just like in Google, you can't just like, Say my code doesn't work, right? Like you have to be like, yeah, oh, yeah. here's like what, right? And and you just, here's how you search stock overflow, and here's like how you like if you look at an experience engineer, they will just like Google it slightly different than than mm -hmm. a newbie. Agree. Would. Yeah. And so I think like AI is sort of like that, where I don't think it's like a people think that there's a magic skill, but like how do you Google better? Like there's probably some like principles that people use, but I don't I don't think it's like a, a skill in of itself. That makes sense. I could, I could yeah, I think it's it's more about having the uh, foresight of using Google for certain things that other people might just like be stomped on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally. Um, so same thing for for AI, right? I try I try to integrate into basically everything that I'm doing, just oh, because. Cool. Yeah, I mean, over like whether it's personal or for work, um, I interrogate it and I try to structure my questioning like within a certain framework because I'm looking to output X. Uh, and, and I think like coders have the most use out of it because now the amount of code base you can feed your, your AI and, and query it, I think is, is incredible. So just this, the reason I'm curious about that. 
Yeah. And specifically people, I mean, like the way that this question is maybe leading to is people inevitably will ask like, oh, do you think AI is going to replace coders? Or does it still make sense to learn coding when all this AI stuff is happening? And so I'm like sort of, uh, I want to preempt that question because it's very common. <laughs> and, and the argument I make, which sounds a little self-serving, is actually it's more important to, to know coding now. Because in a world where AI is doing most of the things for you, when you make a mistake, when it makes a mistake, or not like exactly makes a mistake, but just does like something that's not quite there. Like if you don't know what's happening at all, if it's like a magic wand that waving, you are like so doomed. And so mm -hmm. there have been times when, you know, we've, we've done some experiments, like we've had sort of beginners like build code, like just all entirely with AI and stuff. And it often works, but then like an experienced person look at it and be like, well, that's, that's, this is going to cause you problems like later. Right. Mm -hmm. Or you need to understand why, or like, can you change this? And they're like, oh, I don't know how. <laughs> right. And so they have to start over again from scratch. Right. Things like that. Um, and, and we've all had OpenAI hallucinate uh, on us um, sure. for, for, for non-coding things. And so like for coding things, absolutely hallucinates all the time too. And of course. there's actually a thing where you can sort of almost predict, I, I don't know, I've, I've now developed a feel for like, hey, it's, it's going to get this thing wrong. But like, or, oh, they made this type of error. I, I, can't, I can't like, but like, oh, I know how to fix that. Like, and, and it's, it's actually, it, it just still helps me a lot. But yeah, if I had no coding experience, it would be questionable whether it was helping me that much. Yeah. No, I agree with you for sure. Um, I mean, a trend to, to keep an eye on for sure. Uh, speaking of, you know, you probably saw in the news, uh, Sam Altman trying to build his own chip facility, trying to raise yeah. $7 trillion. <laughs> like any thoughts on that? Uh, let's do it, man. I'm, I'm all for it. Um, I, look, I think like it's, it's so amazing how, how fast it's become. So how it affects me personally is not so much that like you're going to build a factory or something, but just like inspiring to see other people like doing stuff. Uh, I feel like one thing I was talking about with sort of one difficulty with starting a startup in Southeast Asia, I think is just because people aren't as used to crazy things happening. So when I live in San Francisco, like, I mean, I think the best thing about San Francisco is I have several friends who are like billionaires now because they started random companies, right? And then became super smart. And it's not like they were some sort of superhuman people. They were like, uh, there are people that I thought I was smarter than, and it turns out oh, I was not. Right. But like, but people, you just see people doing extraordinary stuff everywhere. And like when it comes to Sam Altman and stuff, like, yeah, he's trying to build like 7 trillion, like most people would never even imagine that. Right. And yeah. And in the face of that, when I go to my marketing intern, I'm like, yo, like you need to double your leads for next month. Like, that's impossible. Like, dude, this, mm. this guy is like building rockets to Mars. He's building a 7 billion. Like, come on. Let's yep. Uh, yeah, and it's helps. funny that you mentioned that. Uh, that's some a conversation I have all the time with uh, investors and other founders in Southeast Asia is like, why Southeast Asia is considered behind in the startup scene. There's like so many factors, but one thing that stands out to me, and you can let me know your thoughts, you've been in, in Asia for quite a while, is that, you know, first of all, like there's a very small middle class overall. So most children who do go through university will have to support their families later on. And that's the expectation in, in Southeast Asian families. And the rational way to do that and the expectation from families is for them to work a corporate job, something steady. And as much as they would have the ambition to build something and maybe the, you know, the brightness and the intelligence and, and the idea to do it, they're just like held back by family traditions and family requirements to fulfill. And to me, like that's the number one driver. I've spoken to many people, but I'm curious to know your thoughts. If you've seen anything similar or if you think there's something else that I'm missing. I heard this amazing story from a, another founder in Thailand. Um, and it was really funny. It was that 
uh, sorry, it's a little off topic, but I think it's related. A, they used to have this problem in Thailand where uh, they were a startup and they would interview these people and people wouldn't show up for the first day of work. Mm. And it was like, why is this happening? And then they realized that um, it was like a family obligation. Like these people would find this job, be really good. But then when they went to their family and like, oh, I'm starting work on Monday. It's like this new startup. Their family would be like, no, you need to go work mm -hmm. for CP mm -hmm. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. So they had this problem. So then the founder thought about it and what he did was then he like made like a little booklet flyer thing. And in that he talked about his company. It was a picture of him, like him staying next to some famous like minister or something. And just everything that made the company look like really amazing on paper. And the purpose was not for the candidate at all. It was like, Hey, take this. And, like, That's this, amazing. This is your family. I love and it. And then bam, like hundred percent. And then he took the next step, which was once a year, he would host like a family day. Uh, and they had a nice office and stuff. It was, it was a startup, and, but they were, you know, they're doing well, so they had a nice office and stuff. And so they would invite all the mothers and fathers and grandparents and stuff to come to the office. And then they would come, see, like, this really nice office and see, like, all this stuff. And then, like, he said that his retention just went through the roof. Like, people wow. never want to leave. And people would want to quit. And then their mom or dad would be like, you can't quit. That company's amazing. That's amazing. You can stay working at that company, right? And this oh, is, like, wow. a very Thailand thing. I think that's a very Southeast Asian thing. Like, have you tried that? It's it's brilliant. Yeah. So it's uh uh yeah. I, it's it's hard to maintain. Like it's it's mm -hmm. it's so weird, right? But like no, I think the thing I did I didn't do this year. I, now I'm telling you the story. I realized I should have done this year. But uh, a couple years ago, what I did was um, one tradition in Vietnam is every lunar year you make a sort of gift basket mm -hmm. um, that has like some nuts and wine yep. in it. But then like the one year I like a letter. You always like write a little letter, and then you know you, you one one year I like wrote a letter to. The parents of the people who are taking their stuff home and i think people love that and wow that, that really was like well received yeah and that's like we're talking about culture differences and all that founders need to adapt and it's like it's a harsh kind of learning curve when you move to southeast i'm talking about founders who want to have the ambition to come and build something here you really have to be on the ground. You have to spend time. Like, there's no way you're going to come up with your Silicon Valley idea and be like, hey, I'm going to replicate this here and it's going to work. Like, I, I would not bet money on that, to be honest. But if you spend six months, a year, learn all the ins and outs, you'll see that your startup idea will probably evolve like 180. Uh, so that's a really good story. Uh, it definitely it definitely explained like uh, the sort of how startups are kind of looked down on by families overall for their uh, kids to work at I, it still doesn't answer for me like the lack of you know startup founders and the uh, creation of of companies so um it, it kind of fills the gap in terms of, like the 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 perception of startups but i think there's still like a a big mystery around why there are so few founders you know what i mean um i don't think it's that mysterious i think um Oh, there's a couple things. I think one is, is it's just hard, right? Like, like I, I would imagine if you're trying to start a startup in the U.S. in 1980, like you know, like whatever the Apple guys were, like before Silicon Valley, like when whatever Silicon Valley was becoming Silicon Valley, I'm sure people were like, "What the hell are you doing?" Like, you know, yeah. like, uh, and you just like, and and I'm sure there's like for all the companies that we hear about, like all the Microsofts and Apples out there, there's a billion companies that we just, just never heard about. Um, of course, so I think yeah. We're sort of perhaps in that like just a little earlier. So we're still like kind of lagging on the rest of the world or like at least the Western world, right? There's less experience, right? And I think that um, what the real Silicon Valley thing happened was that you know, all the people who were there at Apple and Microsoft went and started their own companies and like they went and started Oracle and then all the Oracle people went and started Salesforce. Like The, the mafias, to, right? 
yeah, the PayPal mafia, exactly. But you actually yeah. like have to learn the thing by going through it, and then yeah. then it becomes sort of easy. So I think there's just like a very uh, not a lot of people who have that sort of trajectory. But I think the other thing is just like this is a personal pet peeve of mine. Like there's um, sometimes people try to be like the Silicon Valley or something. Like oh, this is the Silicon Valley of whatever of this mm-hmm. country. And and to me, it's like, well, that's like, that's why you, you can never do that, right? Like in a, a deeply mm-hmm. innovative field where you're trying to build something new for the first time, like if you're trying to be like someone else, like you're not going to make it. And that's what I love about sort of Silicon Valley is like Silicon Valley, like they were like, there's, they are the Silicon Valley, right? There's no, they're not the something of something else. Right. Um, and so often in, in Silicon Valley, I feel, or sorry, in Southeast Asia, you're trying to sort of imitate other people and people aren't like thinking. I think you've already lost that point because you're like, I want to be the, I want to be as good as that guy. Like you'll never mm-hmm. be the person you want to be as good at. It's good inspiration it's, though, but I, I agree with you. I completely see it. It's, it's hard to be fully original though, um, especially when you want to, like we're talking about building an ecosystem of something that already exists. You can't reinvent yourself completely. Like yeah. you're still a copy of something else unless you're building a, a whole new industry out of thin air. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's like, how can I be the best? Like you need to want to be the best. Uh, you had to have that confidence that you can do it, right? I think part of it is like, oh, we could be like the, we could be a smaller version of that for this country. Like just like this kind mm-hmm. of thing already puts you at such a disadvantage. It's like, you know, you wouldn't want to become like the Roger Federer of Vietnam. Like you don't, you, know, you want to be like Roger Federer, right? Like you want to, you want to win. Um, and I, I think agree. that's like when it kind of bring it back is like, that's what I think people aren't just, aren't just ambitious enough. Um, it's like, hey, like, yeah. They're opening a seven trillion dollar like factory. Like, why can't we do that? I mean, of course, there's like a lot of stuff in the way, but like, let's try to let's go to Mars. Let's like do these things. Um, I I completely agree with you, but let you know you mentioned a few names earlier, and you you built a company, and when you present yourself to an investor, you present yourself as the something of something else, right? You know what I mean? We're all victims of it. It's just so much easier to explain, even though that's not the end all. It's just such an easy way to explain it and for someone else to, to, to understand it, right? Yeah, totally. No, I, I get it. And I, we go through it. But like, the, I guess like the, the one thing, I mean, you talked about, so I'm a little triggered because like the thing you're saying is something I, I think about a lot, which is like, you're not going to come in as a Valley founder and just be like, hey, here's a playbook, let's do it. Um, and yeah, I, I can't agree with you more. And like the sort of, naive arrogance of people to do that yet people do it but at the same time like one thing I, I hope that i never lose is yeah the thought that we can be there's nothing like maybe like to put in concrete terms like one thing i see a lot in south asia is like these companies who hire so many people right because mm-hmm. the cost of labor is low and like like you raise a million dollars you can you can hire like 100 people if you want uh you know it's like a value that's like two engineers <laughs> and but like people do this because there's this like sort of assumption that oh, like people aren't as good or like I can't get as good talent. Mm-hmm. Here, or, you know, there's like, there's something about that. And I'm like, yep. no, like we have to like demand excellence at every level. I'm like, look, why are you not as productive as that person? Like what is, what is talking there? And like, of course there's like, there's like real reasons here, right? But like, can we dig into those? Can we not, can we just stop accepting that we need to hire five times as many people here than we would somewhere else? Like, I, you know, I could not like, agree more. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. And I've been a victim of it, um, so I completely understand where you're coming from. Uh, I didn't know it was that common, uh, so I'm glad that you 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 make me feel better that I, I'm not, I wasn't the only one doing that. But it's hard. Like I like, how do you get more out of someone? That's actually a really interesting topic. How do you get more out of people? Is it 
something you have to do upstream in your hiring process or do you like mold them to to what you're expecting of them like uh, what's your what's your strategy with that yeah i wish i'd figured it out i think i've been all over the map on this and um i just keep going back to like what worked for me and i'm not like the most amazing person but i mean like you and i probably like uh also were subject to like how do we perform better and like that's what sort of led us to start our own companies but like to me it was just like people assumed i could do it like my 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 first my first job i remember like in, in Silicon Valley, i used to work for this real company called palm it was like we made the first uh smartphone before before the iphone but like on the my palm first day work, they were like yeah i worked on the palm pilot yeah oh sick yeah it was cool it was awesome i love it um and they were like they were like, oh, you're in charge of this screen. And like a fresh college grad, like, oh, you're in charge of like this screen. It was not a huge screen. I was working on the Wi-Fi settings panel. So like when you go to Wi-Fi and like when you search for yeah, like yeah. Wi-Fi networks, like in that list, I was, I was the guy in charge of that list. Super but then cool. I was like, but yeah, but it's super cool, right? I'm like, dude, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, holy, <laughs> holy shit. I have to like learn. So, but like that pushed me. I'm like, man, like I got to like, I've been responsible for this thing. And I was kind of like, why do they think I can do it? Like I've never, I don't even know like, Palm, like Apollo OS, like the, the whole new iOS, but they were just like, you can do it, like go. And like, of course, it's not just like, it is, is a, there was support and stuff, but like just that assumption where people started like, you're in charge of this thing and you got to figure it out. Mm. Um, and when it comes to startups and stuff, I think like, you know, like I think the interesting thing about iterative, right? Like in the more YC style, it's not like the venture studio, which is like, here's the three ideas, you work on them and we will pay you this much money. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's just like, what do you want to do? Like, you have to come to us and tell us what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. The iterative program is not about telling you like you must do these three things, right? It's like you you have questions, check in with us, and we counsel you. But ultimately, it's like we expect you to build a hundred million dollar company or billion dollar company, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and just that mindset shift, I feel like, is just so uncommon. It's it's one of the other sort of iterative people, Leon. She always talks about how sometimes you feel like startups here are like trying to still get A in school. They're like mm -hmm. professor, like what do I need to do to get A? And it's like you yeah. got to get out of that. Yeah, so I had lunch with Suken yesterday, actually. So we were oh, nice. talking a lot about all these different ideas, like how different VCs handle startups differently, right? Uh, and you're right, like iterative is very hands-off. Uh, but they'll, of course, have all the interventions that they do. But like, if you have to come to them, basically. And there's all these other uh, funds, A16Zs, and, and, and all that are much more like an ag a talent agency whereby... You know, you have this idea, you're a brilliant founder, we'll provide you all the tools. Like, you need this here, use this, this is the best in class. You, you need, you know, you need a chief of staff, we'll provide you one, we'll hire the best. And because of our reputation, we'll bring them on. And basically, like, they, they leverage their network and their, their knowledge to hype you up, build you up. Um, so two different models, right? And seems like in Asia, because of like, maybe there's still a very big hierarchy, there's the family traditions and all, maybe the Asian founders need more of this kind of like hand-holding VC that will, you know, have the founder will be great. The idea will be great, but will, they'll cater through all the other needs to make sure that they perform at peak, like peak performance, essentially. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> um, I, 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 I forgot how we got on this topic uh, originally, but yeah. Well, why are there, why are there not more founders? Yeah. There was more mm -hmm. startups, right? Like essentially. Yeah. That it's because, it's hard. Yeah, I think that it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It is hard. It's super hard. Uh, and speaking of hard, like if you weren't working on what you're doing right now, uh, which I'm sure you're going to be working on for quite a while, is there something else you'd be working on, like a startup that you have in mind that you know 
it's itching you're it's itching you but you can't work on it because you're obviously committed to this yeah yeah obviously committed to it um i think like ultimately one thing that's really interesting about starting a company is you start to think about why you're doing it a lot. So I kind of alluded to this before, like why well, I, I could be just sitting in my shorts, uh, making the same amount of money, break even, um, or actually losing less money. Um, so you think about why I did it and, and it's definitely changed for me over time. But uh, I think ultimately what one thing I really enjoy is just solving things that annoy me. Like, why is the world not this way? And you sort of mm -hmm. like dig into it. You're like, I don't understand why it's not this way. To me, mm -hmm. like education is like the biggest one of those things. Like, how is it that everything in the world has gotten so much better? Like, you know, like the Palm Pilot to the iPhone is like <laughs> a thousand million times better, right? And yet, like the way that I learned to program on it is maybe worse. Like, I don't understand why that's happening. Mm. And like education in general over the past, whatever, hundreds of years has not gotten better. Uh, like I said, I think, I think Coursera is not like intensely better than whatever came before it. Um, so I think that's why I motivated to work on education. There's also some other things about why I, I find it meaningful. But if you ask me like on that similar thing, I think, uh, especially with like sort of my experience a little bit with these, this venture defense stuff, I think this is common for, I'm curious if you have the same feeling, like I might want to solve smaller problems next time around mm -hmm. if I wasn't doing this. Like mm -hmm. perhaps you could say lifestyle business, but I would just want to solve like small problems well and like just have a very clear like value proposition. Like this is exactly what we do. Um, my, one of my inspirations in life has always been this guy, the inventors. So particularly like my favorite coffee maker is the Aeropress. I don't know if you're mm -hmm. familiar with the Aeropress. Yep, I am, yeah. And this guy, like, he just ran around inventing stuff. So he, he like, one day he was like, you know what? Like making a cup of coffee is like way harder than it needs to be. Let me invent a machine that, that does it cheaply. Mm -hmm. Before that, he built like the, this, this Frisbee thing. He's like, oh, why Frisbees seem like they should be able to to go farther like let me uh build one so like he's like always just kind of around solving small problems and i found that really interesting uh to me that's the thing that i would like love to think about with ai so all the different things we can automate like we've all run businesses like we all mm -hmm. see like how crazy inefficient so many things are around like hr i think particularly like for me it's mm -hmm. like oh my god like this is why 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 do we have such huge hr organizations right like and that's been one thing for me that i think i would Love to tackle uh, small things like, you know, there's like everything I do around HR is just like, why is it so difficult? Uh, for example, like we just went through performance reviews and I was like, oh my God, it's so hard to do performance reviews. Uh, I, I'm sure that there's tons of stuff there. And the other thing that was really, really hard for me recently, which I found really interesting, was taking wedding photos. Okay. So to me, I was like, there cannot be a better use case for AI. Like think of all the training data, all these wedding photos mm -hmm. that are super high res and look exactly the same and are all in the same studio. And you want me to pay how many thousand dollars and see here for how many hours to take that, to try to recreate that other photo? Like that's literally mm -hmm. what AI can do. Um, so that's what that's actually a really good, like an existential question around AI because like that's a, it's like a very like real life sort of uh, application. But to me, like I got married already. Uh, you're, you're getting married soon, right? Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. So I know where you're going. Like you're recreating these photos and you want the photo to look as good as possible. And you're going to be paying a few thousand dollars. But at the end of the day, if you used AI to create that photo and you just face swapped or like use, you know, use your face, 
the the whole point of that photo is like to bring a memory, right? It's not just to illustrate the fact that you're married, in my opinion. So that like it won't allude to any memories. It'll just be a, a, a momentum of you being married somehow because it's an illustration of marriage, but there's no memory to it. You know what I mean? So I think I think AI is still like far from it, it, it doesn't generate memories at this point. Well, Neuralink is, is looking into that probably <laughs> for now. For now, we're not there yet. But yeah, that's a really cool idea. I mean, for, for the people who do it for the pure sake of the illustration, I think there's definitely a market there. And there's always a market for everything. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to actually do this idea, but so I don't need to convince you. I'm not pitching for investment. But no, the way I would do it actually is I, I'm with you. I actually think it can't. I think a lot of these AI things are not going to replace our experiences, just augment them. So for me, it was like I had to, like, Chloe and I, like, my, my wife and I, like, there were like five different sets and three different outfits and stuff. And that's mm -hmm. what it took five or six hours. I was wow. like, maybe we could have taken like one photo and then like we could have, like, you know, maybe a hundred of the photos yep. could have been real and then we could have had a thousand generated. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's actually a really stuff. good, that's a, that's a really good one. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I really like the face from this one. I looked in that photo, but like that suit, like, you know, all these like different combinations of permutations that like just were so painful. Um, I think. Uh, did, did you do the Hanboke photos or not? Like the uh, traditional Korean? Oh yeah, yeah. This is a Korean. It's a Korean wedding studio. Yeah. Oh, oh wow, yeah. amazing. Did you, did you do those too? No, I, I'm so pissed. I would have loved to do them, uh, but look, we were we met in Canada. We got married in Canada, like, uh, but then we got married in Bali. Our families came there, and then we were wow. gonna do another wedding in Korea, and then another wedding in France. Because I'm I'm French and Canadian. And once we got through the wedding in Bali, we're like, hell no, we are not doing anything. Like even the photos in Korea, we were not not keen on doing anymore. But I kind of miss it because I'd love to see that. I, I love the tradition there. I think it would be cool. We can always go and take them. Like it's not a big deal. We haven't aged that much since the, since the wedding, so it should be okay. <laughs> good. It's still legit. Uh, so, you know, before we, we close here, do you have anything you want to plug in the pod? Uh, anything you want to shout out to? I guess like the one thing I would like to plug is uh, if there are a lot of people who are sort of feel like they have something to share on about their technical fields, I would love to get in contact with them. So I think the biggest thing we talked about actually here is that there's not that many people who are very experienced. Uh, and so I think that if we can get that cycle going a little faster, so people like you yourselves who've been through a startup, you have so much to share with, with people. And so thanks for doing stuff like this. Mm -hmm. Um, but if I could somehow, one thing we want to do at school is try to, try to build up a better mentor network. So, okay, if someone wants to become a head of growth, what's the career path to that? Mm -hmm. and there's no, again, there's no book that I can, I can do it. I think ChatGPT can sort of help you navigate some stuff, but really ultimately come from people like yourself. So of people listening, if uh, you're interested in helping try to share your experiences with people, I'd love to get in touch. Um, I'm just really looking for the people who've had the real experiences, the real war stories. And if we can productize that experience somehow. Very cool. School is really going to do this year. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely make sure to, to find some people to introduce you as well. So, uh, oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. Anyways, that's the pod, but, uh, it was great having you on, man. It was uh, really cool talking to you and great meeting you as well. Yeah. Great meeting you too. Next time you're, if you're ever in, uh, in Saigon, Hachiman city, please, please look me up. <laughs>